Well, if you're with us in person today or online, I'd invite you to take a Bible and turn with me to Isaiah, the 40th chapter. We are continuing through the scriptural text, and we're, we've got one more week in Isaiah. But we find ourselves in, in one of my favorite texts in the book, Isaiah 40, the first 11 verses. And if you're with us this morning and able, I'd invite you to stand with me in honor of the Lord's word. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak compassionately to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her compulsory service has ended, that her penalty has been paid, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is crying out, clear the Lord's way in the desert, make a level highway in the wilderness for our God. Every valley will be raised up and every mountain and hill will be flattened. Uneven ground will become level and rough terrain, a valley plain. The Lord's glory will appear and all humanity will see it together. The Lord's mouth has commanded it. A voice was saying, call out. And another said, what should I call out? All flesh is grass. All its loyalty is like the flowers of the field. The grass dries up and the flower withers when the Lord's breath blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass dries up, the flower withers, but our God's word will exist forever. Go up on a high mountain, messenger Zion. Raise your voice and shout, messenger Jerusalem. Don't raise it, don't be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Here is the Lord God coming with strength, with a triumphant arm, bringing his reward with him and his payment before him. Like a shepherd, God will tend the flock. He will gather lambs in his arms and lift them onto his lap. And he will gently guide the nursing ewes. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So there's an old grammar joke among English teachers about the importance of commas. You've probably heard it, but please laugh anyway. Um, I remember one of my English teachers saying something like this. The sentence, it is time to eat, comma, grandma, is a very different sentence than one without a comma. It's time to eat grandma. Uh, thank you. Uh, so translators, translators of the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament have a number of challenges in doing their work. But one of the challenges is in the oldest Hebrew and Greek manuscripts, there's no punctuation. And so one of the challenges is to kind of try to figure out as, we, as they translate into that, that into English and other languages, where in the world should we put all this punctuation? The text before us this morning, and if you have your Bible, I'd invite you especially to look at, at verse 3 of chapter 40. The question is, where is the punctuation supposed to go? Now, I know that sounds just like the exciting sermon you came this morning to hear. But the Gospels of both Matthew and Mark take verse 3 of chapter 40, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. And both in Matthew and Mark, they see in these inspired words of Isaiah, they see in them words that in their day, the person of John the Baptist filled full. And therefore, when they quote Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, both in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 3 and in the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, 
they, they give it to us this way, or at least we translate it this way. A voice cries in the wilderness, comma, prepare the way for the Lord. Because in Matthew and Mark, they see John the Baptist filling full these expectations of a voice who, as you, if you remember, who wears funny clothes, eats weird things, and hangs out out in the wilderness baptizing people. A voice out in the wilderness calls to people living in the city, hey, ka, hey, hoo, ha, come on. Come on out, come out to the wilderness and prepare your hearts for this new thing that God is doing. But if you'll notice in whatever translation you have this morning, Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3, the translators have put the comma in a slightly different place. They've put it here. A voice cries out, comma, quotation mark, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every mountain shall be, you know, right. Wait, I'm about to jump into the Messiah here in a moment. But um, he'll make low the crooked straight, right? Um, but they put the comment in an interesting place. A voice cries out, not from the wilderness to the people in the urban cities, come on out. But in Isaiah 40, verse 3, it's this. A voice cries out, you dwelling, living, existing in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Are you excited about that? So here's why that is important. The book of Isaiah has a lot to say to people who find themselves in various forms of wilderness. In forms of barrenness, in forms of emptiness, in forms of devastation, in forms of hopelessness, in dry seasons that seem like they will never end. They find themselves in exile. Now, the last couple of weeks, we've mostly been in chapters 1 through 39 of Isaiah. Just, again, to refresh your memory a little bit, I tell students all the time, if there's a date in Scripture that, that you can kind of latch on to, it's the easiest one to remember, it's the, the easiest question on the test to pass. Most historians date the reign of David to right around 1000 BC. It's an easy date to remember, 1000 as the people of God moved into the 900s, you have this wonderful reign of Solomon, which is certainly the high point of Israel's ancient history. And after Solomon's reign, as they move into the 900s, the nation divides in two. You have 10 tribes in the north, Ephraim or Israel, the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin, capital city of Jerusalem. And I would say for the 900s, there's some challenges and some problems, but for the most part, the 900s continue on in relative security. They have some good kings and bad kings, but but for the most part, there's a secure history. As they move into the 800s, some big cracks begin to show. Pretty decent series of bad kings. And, and all of these little nation states begin to be a bigger threat. Even from the time of David, right? The Philistines have been a problem. But the Philistines and the Moabites and the Perizzites and the Hittites and the Amalekites, all the ites are a problem. And in the 800, they show up, 800s, they show up and... and there's just these times of brokenness and questions about beginning of those conversations. You know those conversations where I'm not sure things are as good as they used to be. 
I'm, and I'm not sure they're getting better. And then when they get to the 700s, things get really bad. And in particular, because these little nations are not so much a problem as is this big superpower that arises in the world, a superpower known as Assyria. And in the late part of the 700s, 721, the Assyrians come in and utterly destroy the northern nations of Ephraim and Israel, and they get all the way to the walls of Jerusalem, and they scare the daylights out of Hezekiah and the Judeans, but then God scares the daylights out of them, and they go home, right? But the 700s are a difficult time, and so chapters 1 through 39 really come in that time period where the Assyrians are coming through. And, and the images, if you've been reading with us, the images of Isaiah, the two dominant ones are like this. The Assyrians are like this giant axe. And I, I don't know why I imagine uh, kind of Dr. Seuss children's books here. And, um, but this giant axe that comes sweeping through this beautiful forest. Imagine the big redwood forests of Northern California. But a giant axe comes sweeping through and just chops everything down. And so that all is left of this beautiful forested land is now just a collection of dead stumps. That's one of the images Isaiah uses. Another one of his images is is of a beautiful city like Samaria that used to be kind of robust and vital and, and had great centers of worship and lots of arts and music and a great economy. Imagine this morning, it, it's hard for us because in this valley, our cities are flourishing and growing and we're kind of complaining about how fast they're growing. But Isaiah might imagine, could you imagine Boise, this, this thriving city that just keeps expanding and all this new stuff coming in, but someday... This force comes in that wipes it out and all of those buildings are knocked down and deserted. And the imagination is Samaria that used to be this place of vitality is now just a barren pasture and forgive us, Pastor Diane, but now just has cows eating there. <laughs> and I know that's heaven for you, but it's hell for Isaiah. <laughs> that's just what used to be thriving and beautiful is now wasteland. And the cows graze there now, and the wild where people used to live, the wild animals now dwell. That's the imagination. But our text before us this morning, Isaiah 40, skips ahead probably about another 150 years or so. So the 600s become a time of real tension in the life of Jerusalem and Judah, not sure what the future holds. But then in the 500s, a new superpower emerges, Babylon. And Babylon has a little bit different agenda than Assyria had. Assyria just kind of comes like an axe and chops everything down. But Babylon comes and gobbles everything up. And Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon come and they gobble up the people. Leave destruction behind, but they, they do an interesting thing. Nebuchadnezzar decides the best way to approach this is not just to kill all the citizens, it's to take them and then separate families and communities from each other, spread them out across the vast empire of Babylon, and have them repopulate cities. But because they can't get near each other or see each other, then they can't communicate with each other, and they can't create forces that push back against each other. And they can't create, they can't create forces that may try to overthrow Babylon, but they can just simply live in discouragement. And one of two things is going to happen. Either the old people 
are going to sit around and complain to each other about how it's not the way it used to be and it never will be that way again. We should just die and that's what they'll do. Or the young people will say, man, mom and dad complain a lot about how things aren't the way they used to be. We never really got to experience that, but things are not that way. And so the question is just simply this. Are we going to die with the old people? Or maybe we'll just get with the thing that's going on in Babylon. And one day they wake up and they just simply end up becoming Babylonians. Are you with me? You're all distracted by lights. You're like (laughs) speaking to children, small children today. Um, Look up here, look up here. But whether you're old people waiting to die or young people being assimilated into the empire, the word of Isaiah comes to people who live in a wilderness, a barrenness, where it feels like every hope we had has been cut off, every chance for a future has ended, and there's nothing for us to do but to to sit here and think about the good old days. But here's the interesting thing. What do God's people do when they're stuck in the wilderness? One option is to die or to assimilate, but another option is the one a lot of them began to take. And that is they began to lament. They began to lament. Now, now listen carefully. Lament is not writing cranky emails to your pastor on a Monday. That's complaining, right? <laughs> That's complaining. (laughs) Lamenting is not griping. Lamenting is not despairing. Lamenting can be painful because lament is honest about where we are right now. And where they are in the 500s is not in a place they want to be. They're in a place of bondage, barrenness, despair, without future. And they're really honest about that. And they're honest about that with each other, but more importantly, they're honest about that with God. But they are able to lament and say that to God because they're not despairing, but because they have hope that God intends for there to be something different than for the story to end in barrenness. And so one of the things that we'll do a couple of books away is the book of Lamentations, where it's laments. And I've shared this with you before, but one of my favorite ways to read Isaiah 40 is to start by reading Lamentations chapter 1, where the people lament, and they say, Jerusalem cries in the night, and there's no one to comfort her. All the people who used to care about her, all her lovers who used to pay attention to her, they've all deserted her, and there's no one to comfort her. Her sins have brought her down to the ground and there's no one to comfort her. It's this constant refrain. There's no one to comfort her. There's no one to comfort her. There's no one to comfort her. And I love to read Lamentations 1 and then flip to Isaiah 40 and you hear these opening words. Comfort. Comfort. That one of the powerful things about Isaiah is that Isaiah is so honest and this is so challenging for us to be honest about our history. It's easier easier for us to deny the reality of our history than to acknowledge it. But lament is a willingness to be honest about our history. But here's the problem. We can be honest about our history that leads to despair. But how do we be honest about our history in a way that leads to a hope? Because we believe that God wants it to be different and will make it different. 
And so they lament. You're not very excited about that. Well, it's lament. I've told you uh, when we were in L.A., I, I used to be part of this group of Protestants and Catholic leaders and Jewish leaders, and we'd get together every other month and talk about different things. And, and a few of the sessions just are so vivid in my memory, but one of them is one time we got together, we decided to talk about prayer. And we would give a different group, assign them to be in charge each time. And so this time the Catholics and the Jewish leaders thought, well, this is a safe top topic to give to the Protestants. We'll let them be in charge of prayer. <laughs> and so we had a lot of really sweet things to say about prayer. We were talking about prayer and our journaling and all these practices of prayer. Finally, one of the rabbis throws his papers down. He goes, oh, you Protestants, you drive me crazy. You're so nice to God when you pray. He said, read those Psalms, read Lamentations. We are convinced that God has promised us some things and we're going to bug God until he does them, right? I think about that every time I read Lamentations and many of the Psalms. These are people who lament, but they lament because they believe that God is faithful and he needs to show up. And he hasn't shown up yet. So we're going to bug him until he does. One of the things I love about Isaiah is as soon as the words of judgment come out of Isaiah's mouth, it's as though the words of hope follow right on their, foots, uh, on their heels. Because both need to be heard. The call here is comfort. And this prophetic imagination that refuses to let, to let exile and barrenness and brokenness have the last word. I think I've told you this story a long time ago, but when Caleb and Noah were little, I would tell them stories quite a bit. They were sitting at the dinner table one night, and they said, hey, Dad, tell us a story. I said, okay, but what do you want me to tell you? They said, oh, tell us the three pigs. And I said, oh, I don't want to tell that story. I've told it to you so many times, you, you, won't, you won't stay with me till the end. They're, no, no, Dad, tell us three pigs, three pigs. So sure enough, they did exactly what I knew they would do. I got into the story. And I got into the story, right? I'm, I'm using the voices and the big bad wolf and the little pigs, right? Like I'm doing the whole thing. But they know it so well, we're barely into the second pig's house and they're not really paying attention like they should be. Look at me, not the light, look at me. <laughs> and so we get to the third pig's house and I said, then the pig knocks on the doors, the little pigs, little pigs, let me in. They said, no, 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 but they're ch -ch -ch so I'm going to huff and I'm going to puff and blow your house down. Well, they really weren't listening, so I decided, well, I'm going to get them. So, so, so the wolf began to blow. And I said, then the bricks began to crack. Now they're back in. I said, the wolf began to blow. And the mortar began to crumble, and now they're fully back in. I said, and then the wolf blew one more time. And the house of bricks collapsed, and the pigs went, ah! And the wolf went, ah! And they, the wolf started chasing them. And the pigs tried to run, but the wolf was much faster. And we had chicken that night, and there were some drumsticks left on the table. So the wolf overpowered the first one. He, ah, chicken flying everywhere. Grab the second big, ah, like they're so into the story now. So much so that there's a tear coming down Noah's cheek. <laughs> Caleb has this terrified look on his face. He and Mel were at first service this morning. I joked, and this is why he had to marry a counselor. Uh, <laughs> 
guys, remember, both of them look at me, and they're just tears saying, Dad, this is not the way that story ends. That is not the way the stories end. You're a terrible story. You're a terrible dad, a terrible story. Um, There is something in Isaiah that so trusts in the goodness of God that every time exile happens, Isaiah says, God refuses to let this be the way this story is going to end. That's why I say so often, evil doesn't get the last word, or darkness, or sin, or death. Comfort in Isaiah. The movement of God gets the last word. A word breaks into them. But here's the word. Prepare the way. Now, in the text, there are a couple of really cool things about God. One is God has this really powerful breath. In fact, I almost named this sermon today the bad breath of God. But there's these powerful verses where where God's breath breathes across the land and, and there's all this language about how the flowers wither and die and the breath of God sweeps across that. My guess is that what Isaiah images there or imagines there is all these empires that have come and gone, Assyria and Babylon and now Persia on the horizon. They're like the flowers of the season that spring up and they have their time, but God is sovereign over them and God breathes across them and they wither and die. And so the obstacles that are between us in the wilderness and God in God's restoration, those obstacles, God can breathe them away when he's ready to. And the other image is God as a shepherd with these powerful arms embracing us in the embrace of the divine the God who breathes away the boundaries, but the God who also binds up our hurts and meets us in our pain. A God who's so powerful and yet so compassionate. Those are powerful images. And and Isaiah says, listen, that kind of God is on the way. And the voice is crying out, but here's what you've got to do in the meantime. Prepare the way. Do road work. And this is where the sermon's going to fall apart. I worked really hard this week trying to find some connection between road work and our current situation. I researched things like the interstate system, which is fascinating, by the way. Did you know it's been in existence for almost 70 years? 1956, Eisenhower passed a law to create all these interstates. You probably know the odd numbers go north and south, and the even numbers go east and west, and they kind of go from one, actually, mostly I-5 and the left all the way, you know, anyway. And did you know that he created them because his experience in World War II was that that Germany had this ability because of the Audubon to get all of their weapons from one place to another rather quickly. And so part of the logic behind the interstate system was if we ever had a war on both coasts, we, we could have a system that could get military weapons from place to place quickly. But in 70 years, it's really had a very different effect, hasn't it? We've changed from a nation that had cities largely built on rivers to now cities that are kind of truck stops along the freeway that got big. Um, And it's changed family life. And I I read all about that stuff this week. It has absolutely nothing to do with the sermon this morning. It's really heartbreaking. (laughs) I even, I even did some research on, on 
The work that was done on 55 this last year, right, when the avalanche happened and they had to blow stuff up. And I even thought, that's cool, like the, God, the breath of God that blows stuff up and then smooths it like that. That would preach. <laughs> but I threw it out. But this road work, in the imagination of, of these ancient Judeans, probably looks somewhat like that. But it's, they were used to what was called the King's Highway that ran from Persia all the way to Egypt. And part of the reason Israel was so flourishing, in part, was because that road ran right through their territory. And, and that meant merchants came through that territory all the time. But it also is why there was so much conflict, because people fought over that road all the time. But the image there is they are in the wilderness, but, but somehow an interstate, a superhighway, a, a king's highway could be built that would, that would bring them out of exile, not in struggle, but would draw them out in, in beauty and in glory. And all people would see it together and say, see, the hand of God is at work bringing the people into wholeness. But here's the question. What did that road work look like? What did it look like? for them to prepare the way for the Lord. As I thought about that question this week, and what would it mean to 6th century Judeans to prepare for God's coming? You know what I realized? And I hope you're excited about this. Much of what we have that we call the Old Testament today, we have because people in exile said, God is not done with us. And God is not done with our children. And we had better take this literature that tells about how God has acted in the past and how God might act right now. We had better keep that. And we better make sure our children know it. And we better live by its imagination. And we better do the practices that it outlines so that we will not lose our life as we wait for God to redeem us. That's just really good, by the way. And that's the way they prepared, waiting for God to act. And I think in our moment, our moment that at times feels like that barrenness, I think in so many ways that we won't create a New Testament, that would be a problem, or a new New Testament. We have one already. But in our moment, it looks like living into the imagination of hope, living together being shaped by scripture, singing songs, participating in practices that don't dismiss the brokenness at times that we enter into, but live into the hope of the God who will not let us go. But I know that for some of us, not just us as a community, but for some of us as individuals, some of you come today in a time of real barrenness and emptiness, wondering if there is a future for you. Here's what I think the voice that calls you to prepare says to us today. Maybe this is the moment where God gets a hold of you and lets you know You've been trying to do this on your own and you can't. And so here's what preparing the way looks like. It looks like finally asking for some godly help. And not hiding and living in shame. It, it looks like finally inviting God's presence 
to give the opportunity and potential of newness to happen. Maybe this morning, the voice that cries out in your wilderness to you is the voice that says, these habits and patterns that you have lived with for so long that continue to destroy and break so many aspects of your life, it is time to begin to allow the breath of God to blow those away and for new habits to begin for you. Maybe the voice that calls in your wilderness today to prepare the way, maybe that preparation is this, to begin to let go of the anger that has defined you for so long. Or to begin the process of letting go beginning the process of forgiveness of others, or maybe the voice is an invitation for you to begin to forgive yourself. And to let shame of the past be caught up in the great mercy of the God who refuses to let that have the last word in your life. Or maybe the voice that cries to you in your wilderness today invite you to prepare because God wants to do something new in your life. And that voice says to you, you have gotten far too comfortable in the wilderness you now call home. Maybe you ought to prepare your heart for me to do something new and for you to trust me and to risk with me. But I would love for you to let me close by being part of God's voice to you today. A voice not calling from the wilderness to come, but a voice that enters into our various wildernesses. Know this, God hears your lament. God is able to bring you out. And God invites you to begin to prepare the way for him to come and to make all things new. God, help us today. I, I thank you for the imagination of Isaiah that is honest about the wildernesses we often find ourselves in as a people and as persons. What we are most grateful for today is your unwillingness to allow barrenness and wilderness and exile to have the final word in Judah and, and your unwillingness to let that have the final word for us. We believe that you are able to remove the obstacles between us and the wholeness to which you are calling us. We believe that that you are able to bind our wounds, to take us up in arms and care for us and to teach us how to care for each other. But so often your voice to us is to lament, to prepare, to live in the hope in the moment that you are able to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine. 
And so I, I pray, God, today for some folks online or in this room this morning who just, who, who find themselves in that barren space. Would you speak comfort to them today? But would you also begin to teach them and help them to see what it means to begin to prepare the way for whatever that new thing is that you're going to do in and through them. Make us ready. Help us to do the road work necessary to prepare the way for you to come in and to make all things new. For you, we celebrate the season of the one who refuses to let even death have the final word. For your son is risen, he is risen indeed. And may that new creation break into us today, for we pray it in his name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me? Let's sing together.
the mountains will bow down, the will down and the seas will roar at the sound of your name. We will sing for joy, I sing for joy at the work of your hand. Forever we love you, Lord. Comfort, comfort, God speaks to you today. A voice cries out, comma, in your wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in that desert a highway for our God. Make the crooked places straight, the rough places plain. For the glory of the Lord will come in and all flesh will see it together. And so unto him who by that compassionate power at work within us, who's able to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine, to him be glory in us, the people he will not give up on, and in his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, now and for all generations. And God's people said, amen. Go in his peace.